merciful, ever merciful, and may God's peace and blessings be upon his holy prophet Muhammad and the purified members of his household and progeny. Allahumma salli ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad wa ajil farajah. Brothers, sisters, respected viewers, assalamu alaikum jami'an wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. And welcome once again to our series, Life, the Islamic Answer. We were discussing the theme of knowledge and reason in Islam, and we had reached the heading of the merits of the scholar or the teacher. And so this is going to be perhaps the third lecture on this topic. We'll see if we can try to wrap it up today, or we'll need maybe one more lecture to finish it and start the next section. So the last time we met, we saw from the various hadith, the merits of the scholar and the teacher, mentioning, for instance, that the seeking of knowledge is preferable in the sight of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to any other act of ritual and any other act of worship. And we spent a little bit of time explaining what is meant by these and we saw multiple hadith related, for instance, specifically to how the seeking of knowledge is better than prayer or fasting or performing pilgrimage. And we added a lot of commentary and detail around these, context around these, to the point where some of the hadith were saying, for instance, to be asleep while carrying knowledge is better than to be in a state of worship. Uh, for someone who does not carry that knowledge. Of course, as we said again and again, none of these hadith are to be interpreted as being discouraging from performing acts of rituals and worship. It's exactly the opposite in that all acts of worship should be accompanied by a appropriate, at least, a minimal or appropriate amount of knowledge for them to gain meaning. And the more you have knowledge, the more you understand who you are worshipping and why you are performing this act of worship and how it's supposed to bring you closer to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the more that same act of worship gains value and importance and significance in our religion. And there's a lot more that we can say around this. I may come back to it towards the end. A lot of it, I think, has been covered in previous lectures, but just because we spent a bit more time over the past two lectures discussing this specific heading of what seems to be the preference in our religion of knowledge over everything else, including especially acts of worship and us wanting to make sure that there's no misunderstanding. Uh, we may want to come back to it at the end if there's uh, a need for that or not. In addition to this, we also saw that the ahadith mention explicitly the rationale or the justification or the reasons for knowledge being at such a higher degree than acts of worship and rituals in our religion. So some of the ahadith were talking about how it leads to wara', the, the fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or even if we want to take it back to the Holy Quran, it's because knowledge is what is supposed to give the true access to what is called khashyah, or piety, it's only those who are the carriers of knowledge who truly fear Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who truly have piety or God-fearing. Why? So we've gone through all of this in the past when we were talking about the seeking of knowledge and why seeking knowledge 
just the act of making the effort of trying to acquire knowledge has such a high rank, high status, high merit in our religion. And so now we're looking at the ahadith. In some of them, they are the same or similar. And some of them, no, they are now talking about the person who has now acquired the knowledge. But there's certainly overlap between these ahadith. So that's the first reason. A second reason mentioned in a number of ahadith was talking about how it is through knowledge that doubts and questioning and confusion and distortion can be addressed and can be eliminated. And this is a very big source of danger and problem in our religion, that you want to get rid of anything that leads to uncertainty in your faith, that you want to have a faith that is unshakable. And all of these hadith are pointing to the fact that it is through knowledge that you achieve that level of certainty in your faith and in your uh, beliefs. And then we saw the hadith that emphasize, and we said this is perhaps the most important aspect, practically speaking, of the teacher or the scholar, in not that they carry, not that they have the knowledge, that's good for them, that they have the knowledge, and there is merit in that, but that's good for you, that you carry the knowledge. It's what are you doing with it? And in short, how much effect or influence are you having on others? How far are you spreading this good into the world? How far are you going and influencing others, affecting others with the knowledge that you carry? This is the key. And this is the merit, the teacher, the scholar, and inshallah today this is going to be a lot clearer with the ahadith that we saw. And we saw the headings related to the rank, the merit of the scholar, the teacher, and Islam. We put them, we categorized them in a number of headings. The heading that we wanted to get to, we said that's going to be the, the bottom line in all of this is what is the rank or the merit of this person in the afterlife? This is where things are revealed in their true form. And so we put a heading for that, and we're going to see a few ahadith that specifically talk about the ranks, the merits, the distinctions of these people in the afterlife. So inshallah, we're going to see that, and we will see how it's going to be directly related to this last point. Every time there's a mention of the rank, the, the distinctions of the scholars, the teachers in the afterlife, they don't just emphasize the uh, amount of information that you carry. What they emphasize is that you had influence over people and you affected them, their behavior, their thinking, their beliefs. You made them better people. They improved as a result of what you shared with them. And this is going to be what gives you your distinctions and your ranks in the afterlife. So there's, it's not just the information that you carry. It's what are you doing with it? And as we discussed a couple of times now, are you spreading, are you using that knowledge to allow people to achieve a higher, higher level of certainty? Or is that knowledge being used to achieve a higher level of uncertainty and confusion and distortion and questioning of things that should go without saying or that should form the basis the foundation of their beliefs. Okay, so we had good discussions around all of this, and I think in today's world, this is going to be even more uh, something that is important. We've discussed multiple times how in today's world, and this has always been the case, but in today's world, you clearly see it, that there are ideological wars. There are information or ideology wars that are constantly going on. So what role are you playing? Are you performing anything with the knowledge that you have? 
to the level that you can. Are you doing anything about that? Are you taking a clear position? Are you trying to influence people to share the truth, to create a way for people to access more truth? There's a lot of work to be done uh, around all of this. And so, as we said, the true merit of these people does not show in the amount of knowledge that they carry. It's your effect on others or at least acting as a conduit or a channel or an intermediary for others to access that knowledge. So inshallah, the rest I'm going to leave aside. There's a lot of discussions we can have around this so we can come back to it um, a little bit later. The next heading related to the merits of the scholars. So this one is going to highlight two things. And it's simply going to say spending time with them. And we've talked a little bit about this. So this is one more hadith related to this. The Holy Prophet ﷺ, in a longer piece of advice that he gives to the well-known noble companion of the Holy Prophet Abu Dhar al-Ghifari, he tells him, أَلَا فَاغْتَنِمُوا مَجَالِسَ الْعُلَمَاءِ فَإِنَّهَا رَوْضَةٌ مِنْ رِيَاضِ الْجَنَّةِ تَنْزِلُ عَلَيْهِمُ الرَّحْمَةُ وَالْمَغْفِرَةِ كَالْمَطَرِ مِنَ السَّمَاءِ يجلسون بين أيديهم مذنبين ويقومون مغفورين لهم والملائكة يستغفرون لهم ما داموا جلوسا عندهم وإن الله ينظر إليهم فيغفر للعالم والمتعلم والناظر والمحب لهم So the Holy Prophet tells Abu Dhar indeed seize the opportunities to sit in gatherings of scholars for these gatherings are some of the gardens of paradise. Mercy and forgiveness descend upon them like rain from the heavens. They sit in their gatherings as sinners, and when they rise, when they leave those gatherings, when they rise, they have been forgiven. The angels seek forgiveness for them as long as they remain sitting in their presence. And God looks at them, granting them forgiveness, to the scholar, to the learner, to the observer, and to the one who loves them. So there's a lot to cover in this hadith, but the truth is, almost all of the points mentioned in this hadith, we've seen separately in other ahadith, so I'm not going to go into any detailed discussion about this hadith, inshallah, everything that it talks about is clear, and I will try to come back to it, I'll try to remember to come back to it when we talk about community, because there's a very important hint here to how to establish a community of knowledge or learning. And we said this is the next heading, inshallah. A couple of points around this hadith. The first one is that I was only able to find this hadith in Sunni sources. So there's something to be said about that, that we didn't find it in, I can't find it in our uh, any of our uh, original Shia sources. There is weakness in the, let's say, the construction and the wording the grammatical construction of this hadith. I don't want to go into it right now, but there is a little bit of a weakness. So this might, of course, diminish its level of authenticity. Except that, as I said, every point in this hadith, we can find a reference to it, clear references to it in other hadith. So the content of the hadith, we can consider to be valid. The wording itself of the hadith, you know, there might be, um, there might be things that are, questionable, so I, I like to mention that in case someone is looking more deeply into the authenticity of every hadith, but as I said, the content of the hadith can be established from other hadith. 
Finally, the heading that we've been talking about, which is the afterlife. And so this is where we want to see the true rank and the true merits of these people. We saw how they are to be treated in this world, the manner in which you honor them and respect them and observe their ranks in this world, how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala looks at them, that what they do is preferable to the acts of the worshippers and so on and so forth. We discussed all of that. What does this translate to in the afterlife? So we're going to see a few themes. I don't want to highlight them too much, inshallah. They will become clear from the hadith, but we can come back to it a little bit later. First hadith from Imam al-Baqir alayhi salam. Man allama baba hudan falahu mithlu ajri man amila bih wala yunqasu ulaika min ujurihim shay'a waman allama baba dalal kana alayhi mithlu awzari man amila bih wala yunqasu ulaika min awzarihim shay'a so Imam al-Baqir says, whoever teaches a form of guidance to others, they will have, he will have a reward like that of those who act upon it. So the one who teaches a form of guidance will receive a reward equal to the actions of those who act upon what they have taught them. Without the reward of the latter being diminished in any way. So the Imam makes sure that it's well understood. That it's not the reward of the second that is taken and given to the person who teaches. That person receives their full reward for acting upon the knowledge. So nothing is diminished, nothing is taken away from, nothing decreases from the reward of the doer, the one who learned and went to act based on that knowledge. But the one who taught also receives, without having done the action, also receives the reward for the same actions if they were the result of their teaching, of their learning. And then the Imam continues on the other side, and whoever teaches a form of misguidance, he will bear the burdens of sins like the sins of those who acted upon it, upon that misguidance, without the sin of the latter being lessened in any way. So that person is still responsible for committing their sin. But if it was as a result of something that they learned from someone else, then the teacher of that misguidance is also incurring, is also now going to carry the burden of that sin for having taught it, for having been the reason, the source of others being misguided in that way. A first point related to this hadith, and we could spend a long time on this hadith. The first point is that it talks about a general principle or a general law in this world. And this is something that is very clear in the Holy Quran that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says there are sunan. There are laws and principles by which this world functions. They form the foundation and the better you understand them, the more you understand why the world is the way it is and why religion is the way it is. So one of these is that any action our religion says, does not happen in a vacuum. On the one side, there is probably some sort of influence that led to you, alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah, alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah. First, that action, if it happens, it probably is a result of something, good or bad. It's a result of something. So it has a source. You had some sort of influence that led to that action. And then that action itself is going to be the, re- the source for 
something else to become the result of it. Nothing is happening in a vacuum. Things cannot be looked at in complete separation, complete autonomy. You just look at the action by itself. What led to that action? And what does this action lead to? And this becomes a very, very deep topic or very deep theme in our religion. To understand why is it that we act in a certain way? Should we be acting in a certain way or not? Did the influence come from the right place, the right source? And then what happens when I act this way? It doesn't stop at me and my action. This is going to have an influence in the world. Is that influence something desirable? I'm going to be responsible for that and I'm going to come back to that in a second. So that's the first theme that we can take out of this hadith. Secondly, this once again brings us back to the key in the merit as well as the risks and the dangers associated with the scholar and the teacher. This is a reminder that if they are granted this rank, this distinction, given this distinction by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's because of the influence that they have on others. Once again, this is a reminder. A hadith that it's not about the knowledge that you carry. It's what are you doing with it. In this case, this hadith is talking about what is being taught to others. You are getting those rewards for actions that you have not performed. Good or bad, you're now carrying that burden. Good or bad. So this is the risk and the danger as well as the merit and the distinction and the rank of the person who teaches. And so therefore, if you carry knowledge, the key is spread it. It can't just remain knowledge that you carry in your mind, in your heart, in yourself, and it does not go anywhere. It needs to be disseminated. This is the key. That the knowledge stays at your level does not put you in this category of being a scholar and a teacher. This is simply someone who carries the knowledge and it stays as as an individual, you're a good individual, you carry the information. But these hadith, these narrations that talk about the scholar are not going to be applying to you. All of them are emphasizing the influence you have on others. To what extent were you able to change lives, change minds, change behaviors? Okay, so that's secondly. And then thirdly, and this is the perhaps a little bit more indirect point, and it touches the, the first point that we were making, is that the more we understand this point, that nothing is happening in a vacuum, and the more we see that this is foundational in our religion, the better we understand Islam. We all struggle with this, especially in today's world. We live in a world where, by default, we're trained to think, we're trained to have a worldview that is very individualistic. It's all about me. It's all about my freedom. I should be free to do as I please. And you should be free to do as you please. Then we have these ahadith that say, no, it's not as simple as that. I want to give you all the freedom. But the problem is that when you're doing something, it's going to affect others. They might be learning from you. It might be unconscious. You didn't try to teach others. But what you're doing this wrong you're putting in the world, or this right you're putting in the world, whatever you're doing is going to influence and affect others. And they will behave in a different way as a result. 
You're doing something good. You influence people to do good. You are now going to receive those rewards. You do something bad and people learn that bad from you. You now carry those sins. Why does religion insist on this? When you see the way our religion is put together, the teachings of our religion, this is where you start understanding the more social dimension of our religion. That it's not just about the individual. There is an individual or individualistic dimension to our religion, for sure. But there's also a very clear, very heavy, very dense social aspect to our religion. The public space is recognized in our religion. This is public. It does, you don't own it. You can't control it. You can't do as you please in the public sphere. Because it has an influence on others. This is the more spiritual dimension of it. To use a spiritual language around it, we say, therefore there are rewards. There are sins. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will punish you for this. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will reward you for this. You can use a different type of terminology. It all amounts to the same thing, that you and what you do and how you behave is going to influence others. Therefore, it can't be full freedom. If others are going to learn this bad behavior from you, you are responsible for having spread that. There's an accountability here. And on the other side, there's a recognition when you are spreading good in the world, there's also a recognition in our religion that you are the source of that good. And this is what you're supposed to do. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala even if others don't realize or don't recognize, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that you are spreading good in the world. And this could be done at all levels. We all have people in our circle of influence. They could be our children, they could be our family members, they could be our friends, they could be people we work with. You are influencing someone at all times, good or bad. Our religion says, and for every behavior, every influence, every instance, there's an accountability. Make sure you think beyond just yourself. Yes, you are free to act, and therefore you're going to have to deal with the consequences, reward or punishment, at your level. But there's another layer. There's a social layer now. There are other human beings involved. You're also responsible for that. You can't say, well, I didn't mean to, I didn't think about it. No, you're supposed to think about it. You're, you don't live in a vacuum. Whether you like it or not, you are part of a social fabric. You have people in your circle who are watching you, who are learning from you. And this can go very far in establishing a family, a community, a society, and so on and so forth. Okay, so this the reason I talk about this is because this is foundational in our religion. And when you see these ahadith and you think about it at a deeper level, you see that it's very clear. It can, it can provide the, the whole foundation for a social theory in Islam. And to find that right balance between how far do we go in granting individual or individualistic freedoms and liberties versus living in a society where uh, there are other people. And there is a public sphere. There is a place in that society where we live a common life, where we interact with other people outside of our intimate or individualistic sphere. So what happens there? How do we manage that? Does everything go? Does the same freedom that you have as an individual in your individual sphere apply to your public sphere? This is where we 
start, if you understand this, then you understand a lot of the teachings of our religion. Because they touch this point. What is your influence over others? In any case, I won't go any further here. There's one more layer given to what is provided in this hadith and the next hadith from Imam al-Sadiq salam. So Imam al-Sadiq salam an Abi Basir قال سمعت أبا عبد الله عليه السلام يقول من علم خيرا فله مثل أجري من عمل به So in the previous hadith the Imam was saying that when you teach someone you are going to basically be accountable for their behavior based on what they learned from you. If good, good. If bad, bad. This hadith is going to go one step further to make it even clearer. So an Abi Basir قال سمعت أبا عبد الله عليه السلام يقول من علم خيرا فله مثل أجري من عمل به قلت فإن علمه غيره يجري ذلك له قال إن علمه الناس كلهم جراله and then Abu Basir adds, he says, قُلْتُ فَإِنْ مَاتْ قَالْ وَإِنْ مَاتْ So Abu Basir says, I heard Abu Abdullah, Imam al-Sadiq salam say, whoever teaches something good, they will have a reward like the one who acts upon it. Same thing as we had in the previous hadith. Okay, in this hadith, there is no mention of and if they teach something bad or evil. Okay, but that's to be understood. So this part is the same, we already covered. And then Abu Basir says, I added, I asked, what if the learner, what if he, the learner, teaches it to someone else? So you're no longer the one with the original teaching. You received that teaching from someone and you went and taught it to someone else. Does the same rule apply to you? Now that you acquired knowledge from somewhere else, someone else, is that still the case? He said, if he teaches it to all the people, the reward will still be for him. So both get the reward. So the first person only, I taught only one person. I get the reward for having taught one person. Now you go and you teach it to 100 people. The imam says, yes, the first person still receives the reward for all those people learning. And of course, the second person is also receiving because the same thing applies to them. They were the first layer in their case. But in my case, I'm now the second layer. I'm one removed. And this goes on. And so Abu Basir says, he, he adds another twist to it. He says, what if, if he teaches, if he teaches it to all the people, this will be for him? He says, what if he dies? So the first person has now died. They left this world. They're no longer teaching. They're no longer influencing. They have completely left this world, cut off from this world. The Imam says, even if he dies. So this will continue. So this is an amazing hadith. In case there was any doubt in the previous one, when you teach and you're putting good out there, what happens? You are receiving the reward for that good. But it doesn't say more. In this hadith, we get two more layers. The first layer is that those you taught are going to go teach. They're going to spread the knowledge that you gave them. You're getting all the reward for not having done anything except to teach the first layer. That first layer is perhaps teaching a second layer and a third layer, and that knowledge is spreading. The hadith says, all of that is still yours. And if to apply the wording of the first hadith, 
And no one is losing any reward in the middle. Everybody is getting their full share of the reward. That reward is just multiplying. And then it goes one step beyond. Even if you leave this world, that knowledge that you put in this world, so long as it keeps spreading, so long as it keeps influencing people, after your death, you're still accumulating the credits. You're still accumulating the rewards of that knowledge spreading. And the Holy Qur'an talks about this, by the way. Okay, If you put good, how that good multiplies. It multiplies exponentially, right? In this world. So, this is where we can have a whole discussion, which we're not going to have now, but just to point to it or remind of it, the generational aspect. And the importance of thinking about down the line, where is this going? My behavior, my action, my worldview, my teachings, my children, whatever you think about. Have a very far-reaching vision of this world. Don't be limited to yourself. Think generations down the line. This becomes by default the manner in which we're supposed to think. The hadith hint to that. Not everybody is able to do that all the time, but there's certainly an encouragement in the hadith to go further than just yourself in the immediate. Think beyond yourself. Think beyond your life. You're going to be alive in this world for one, two, three generations and you leave this world. What kind of influence do you want to leave in this world? What kind of effect do you want to leave? It does not necessarily need to be something material that everybody recognizes. It can be something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognizes. God knows what influence you had. You were the source of what good in this world. Even though people may not see it. You knew, you did what you had to, what you could, and you left this world. The hadith say, you continue to accumulate the rewards. So don't limit yourself in the way you think to the material way of being in this world, which we're all very well trained to do in this world. So in any case, to me, this is an absolutely beautiful hadith, very encouraging, very inspiring, very a very strong reminder of the generosity of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that you continue to accumulate rewards after you leave this world for perhaps something simple that you did, so long as people are benefiting from it, so long as it's having an effect, a positive effect in the world, you continue to accumulate rewards, and we're going to see that in some hadith, including the next one. We're going to see what this means, how this translates in the afterlife. So now we know there's a reward. And to us, this is already great. The imams go further in, in giving us that image very clearly. So there's a hadith from Imam al-Sadiq salam He says, the Holy Prophet says, so Imam Sadiq says that the Holy Prophet said, a person will come on the day of judgment with good deeds like accumulated clouds or like giant mountains. So this is what they see. Imagine you get yourself on the day of resurrection, you're shown your deeds. 
and your good deeds look like that, like they are mountains giant mountains kaljabal rawasi and so this person says any of us might say he turns to allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and he says my lord how can all of this be for me when i did not perform these deeds the deeds that make up these mountains of rewards i know that i did not perform these how can you be giving all of this to me and allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will say this is your knowledge that which you taught the people and they acted upon it after you you left knowledge in the world and they did good and as they did good these rewards accumulated and now they look like they are giant mountains of rewards that of actions that you did not perform but you get all of that okay so inshallah this is further encouragement as we have been saying throughout the series spread the knowledge that you have find ways to touch people's lives with that knowledge be a reason for people to learn something good and do something good with that knowledge to me this is a today it's very a famous thing to see a life hacks this is a life hack this is a shortcut this is you know for for those who who study math even those who don't study math you can easily find it do the difference between what they call a geometric growth and an exponential growth look at the curve what that looks like this is an exponential growth geometric would be that you continue to get better as an individual you continue to accumulate rewards slowly steady pace it grows over time if you continue to be good all the way until the end of your life or you have exponential growth that goes like this why because you have other people working for you and all you had to do is to make sure that the right knowledge reaches them and the knowledge itself will have its effect on people and of course the more effort you put in the more this is going to be yours the more reward you get next hadith from the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam and this is going to open a very big door that i didn't really want to open but the hadith says from the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam hamalatu al-ilm fi dunya khulafa'u al-anbiya wa fi al-akhirati min al-shuhada so the holy prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam says the scholars in this world are the successors of the prophet or prophets and in the hereafter they are among the martyrs that's if we want to use the tradi- traditional way of understanding wa fil akhirati min ash-shuhada because if we want to use the quranic way how the holy quran uses this term the holy quran never talks about someone dying for allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the way of god it does not call them shaheed or shuhada the holy quran says qutilu fi sabilillah it uses that terminology that wording the holy quran uses shaheed shuhada ashhad the term is there in the holy quran but it never talks never uses this term to talk about those who have been killed in the way of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala the holy quran uses it in a more literal way when the holy quran says shaheed it's talking about a witness someone who will bear witness and this of course opens the door to 
then why is the shaheed called the shaheed? Why do the ahadith refer to the person who dies in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Why does it refer to it as a shaheed? So in English it doesn't translate because martyr and witness are two completely separate roots and separate terms. But in Arabic we all say shaheed and the first meaning that comes to mind is not someone who is performing shahada. It's rather someone who has been killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Either innocently or while fighting, for instance. So if we go through the Holy Qur'an, we see that this is a whole discussion in the Holy Qur'an. And if we add to the Holy Qur'an the ahadith, then this topic of shahada becomes very, very clear. In our religion, the things that are supposed to happen, one way for us, the imagery that is presented to us on the day of judgment, that's the reason why it's called a day of judgment, it's like a tribunal. In a tribunal you have a judge, and you're going to have a plaintiff, an accused, and you're going to have witnesses. And this is exactly how the Holy Quran and exactly how the ahadith portray, draw this image of what is awaiting us on the day of judgment. What will happen? So the Holy Quran and the ahadith, they tell us that the categories of witnesses are multiple too. Not only are the witnesses multiple, numerous, but the categories of witnesses are multiple. We have the ahadith and we have the I'm going to skip over the verses of the Holy Qur'an. There are too many that will be a full lecture if we want to spend time on going through what the Holy Qur'an says. But very quickly, we have verses of the Holy Qur'an that talk about prophets being witnesses. And especially our prophet being a witness. Perhaps not only being a witness over his own nation, but over other prophets. Okay? And that's a whole discussion. And then we have the hadith and the verses of the Holy Qur'an that talk about specific categories of people, a specific category of people being the ones who will bear witness in the afterlife, the saints, let's call them, of the nation. So you go back to the ruwayat, and clearly they say that those people are our imams. They perform the role of the witness. They are witnesses over the world, over what happened. We have the narrations, and we have verses of the Holy Qur'an that talk about angels performing the witnessing, the act of bearing witness. The Holy Qur'an talks about this very, very clearly. جَاءَتْ كُلُّ نَفْسٍ مَعَهَا سَائِقٌ وَشَهِيدٌ You have two angels, one of them pulling you, bringing you to your position where you stand, and one of them is acting as a witness. And then you have the angels who are writing all of your deeds, and so on and so forth. The Holy Qur'an is very clear. We have in the Holy Qur'an and we have in the narrations that the earth or the land, and you have the entire chapter of Zalzala, تُحَدِّثُ أَخْبَارَهَا What is the earth talking about? It's bearing witness. And if you go to the narrations, it talks very clearly about the earth, the land on which you walk, on which you perform good or on which you perform bad. It will bear witness in the afterlife. It will speak, it will say, 
This person performed this on me. When this person was alive over me, using the resources that I was granting. This is all in the narrations. This is how they were using my resources. This is what they were doing while they were alive on this earth, on this land. We have narrations that talk about specific days, for instance, the day of Arafah. Right? When we perform the pilgrimage, the day of Arafah is mentioned explicitly in the year as being the day, a day that will bear witness in the afterlife. That day specifically. We have narrations that say every Friday of every week bears witness over what you did in that week. We have narrations that say every single day that you live is, goes, is going to also, so in other words, the time, time itself is going to be a witness and the narrations are multiple in which category of time will bear witness. We have narrations that talk about the Holy Quran itself being a witness. And we have many narrations that talk about specific chapters of the Holy Quran being specific witnesses as well. We have very clearly in the Holy Quran and in the narrations your own records of deeds. اقرأ كتابك كفى بنفسك اليوم عليك شهيدا The Holy Quran says you will be asked to read your own records of deeds and in that case you will be a sufficient witness over yourself. This kitab that you have, that the Holy Quran says people are going to say, how come this book is not leaving any detail out? It mentions everything. Beyond that, we have the verses of the Holy Quran that talk about our bodily organs. It's going to say that your sight and your hearing and your skin is going to bear witness over you. And then when, when these organs are going to be bearing witness, some people are going to be very, very frustrated with this and object to them and tell them, how come you're bearing witness against me? You're my own skin. Why are you even talking? Right? There's a whole conversation in Surah Fussalat and elsewhere. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, قَالُوا أَنْطَقَنَ اللَّهُ الَّذِي أَنْطَقَ كُلَّ شيء. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has made us speak as he, as he has made everything speak. Okay, and rituals. So the prayer that you pray, the fasting that you perform, the charity that you give, the pilgrimage that you perform, all of those, and there are multiple narrations around this, they will come as witnesses. Pilgrimage in the afterlife does not look like what we know to be pilgrimage in this world. When we talk about fasting, fasting in this world looks like you're simply going hungry and thirsty. In the afterlife, fasting has a shape and a form. It may look like a person if you read the ahadith. Same thing for prayer, same thing with charity. Okay, There's a personification of these rituals. Okay, and then we have specific people. And in the narrations, when they talk about as commentary to the verses of the Holy Quran, or in separate narrations, like as in this one, there is a repetitive, a recurrent mention that scholars will come as witnesses in the afterlife, on the Day of Judgment. Scholars will bear witness. 
And as we said when we began this whole topic of the scholar or the teacher in Islam, we said the true meaning of it is the infallible. That's the true scholar. That's the person who carries the true meaning. And that was already covered. But any other person who carries true knowledge is going to have to bear witness because they carry truth. And so they will be asked to bear witness in the afterlife. I think I'm going to stop here. There's a lot of other details that we could add about this whole topic of the witnesses in the afterlife. Of course, the greatest and the scariest of the witnesses is none other than Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And imagine yourself in a courtroom where the judge is also the witness. And this is what we have in the afterlife. Yes, there are all of these other witnesses. But ultimately there is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who is the judge, the ultimate judge, and who is also the witness over all the other witnesses. So, in any case, next hadith. From the Holy Prophet ﷺ, from Imam al-Sadiq, from the Holy Prophet, ثَلَاثَةٌ يَشْفَعُونَ إِلَى اللَّهِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ فَيُشَفِّعُهُمْ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ ثُمَّ الْعُلَمَاءِ ثُمَّ الشُّهَدَاءِ Imam al-Sadiq says the Holy Prophet said there are three groups who will ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on the day of judgment to intercede, to provide intercession, to provide shafa'ah, to help others. They're not just thinking at their own level for themselves. Those three categories are going to be, the Imam says, they're going to be the prophets, the scholars, and once again, the witnesses or the martyrs. And both can work. Okay? And the Imam says those three categories ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to intercede, and Allah will grant them permission. So, yes, the prophets, and we talked about this multiple times. We had a whole heading around how, in our religion, when it wants to show the distinctions and the merits of the scholars, the teachers, it always associates them first with prophets in everything. And we're going to see this very explicitly in other hadith again. But in this hadith, clearly, once again, you find the scholars with the prophets. Okay, and we said this goes both ways. On one side, it's giving a great rank and a great distinction to scholars. And on the other side, it's also adding a huge responsibility on the shoulders of someone who wants to be a scholar in this sense. The reason for being in the same category of prophets is that you are performing the same mission and the same duties as prophets. We saw that in the ahadith. They were saying it's because they perform the same action, the same mission. You are sent to teach people. And you work very hard, and you're willing to sacrifice a lot so that people see the truth and accept the truth. This is what prophets are doing. And this is what you are trying to do as a scholar. And for that, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is putting you in the same category with them. Okay, next hadith from the Holy Prophet sallallahu alaihi He says, "Ya Salman, alayka bi qira'at al-Qur'an fa inna qira'atahu kaffaratun kaffaratul dhunub wa sitratun min an-nar wa amanun min al-'adhab." This narration we're going to read the ending of it. 
It's going to be very interesting how it's going to bring the scholars in. This narration is about the merits and the distinctions and the importance of the Holy Quran in our religion. So inshallah, that part is clear and we don't spend too much time on. But this is an excellent reminder of the rank and the position and the importance of being attached to the Holy Quran. But the hadith is going to elevate the the threshold, let's say. It's not just reciting because the hadith is starting with the Holy Prophet simply providing this admonition, this rem, rem, uh, reminder to Salman to recite the Holy Quran. But we're going to see that what the Holy Prophet wants him to be is not simply a reciter, someone who's reciting the words. He's going to use another term, a very important term. Okay, so, Ya Salman, alayka bi qira'atul Qur'an, fa inna qira'atahu kaffaratul dhunub, wa sutratun minal nari, wa amanun minal adab. Fa innahu, it's a longer hadith, I'm skipping a part, then he says, fa innahu laysa shay'un ba'da ta'allum al-ilm, ahabbu ila Allah min qira'atul Qur'an. وَإِنَّ أَكْرَمَ الْعِبَادِ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى بَعْدَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ الْعُلَمَاءِ ثُمَّ حَمَلَةُ الْقُرْآنِ يَخْرُجُونَ مِنَ الدُّنْيَا كَمَا يَخْرُجُ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَيُحْشَرُونَ مِنَ الْقُبُورِ مَعَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَيَمُرُّونَ عَلَى الصِّرَاطِ مَعَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ وَيَأْخُذُونَ ثَوَابَ الْأَنْبِيَاءِ فَطُوبَى لِطَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ وَحَامِلِ الْقُرْآنِ مَا لَهُمْ عِنْدَ اللَّهِ مِنَ الْكَرَامَةِ وَالشَّرَفِ so the Holy Prophet says, O Salman, hold fast to the recitation of the Holy Qur'an. For its recitation serves as an expiation of sins, as a forgiveness, as an erasing of sins. A guarding shield against the fire and a safeguard against punishment. And then later the Holy Prophet says, Indeed, there is nothing more beloved to God and here is the punchline, after the acquisition of knowledge, then the recitation of the Holy Qur'an. Usually in these ahadith that are trying to show the merit, the importance, the rank, the distinction of a, an act, a ritual, you won't necessarily always find the exceptions, all of the exceptions mentioned. You can find them in other ahadith. Because here we're just highlighting the importance of here the Holy Prophet made a point to say, even though we are talking about the most important thing, which is your attachment to the Holy Qur'an, I will still add that if there is one thing that is more important and more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it's to acquire knowledge. But after the acquisition of knowledge, then there is nothing more beloved to God than recitation of the Holy Qur'an. Okay? So he says, indeed, there is nothing more beloved to God after acquiring knowledge than the recitation of the Holy Qur'an. Because otherwise it's an empty recitation that is meaningless. The most honorable of his servants after the prophets are the scholars and then the carriers of the Qur'an. And here's where we see that the Holy Prophet now raised it a rank. Initially he was simply telling Salman, you have to recite the Holy Qur'an. There is nothing more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than reciting the Holy Qur'an. Now he used another term. He said, those, the most honorable of his servants after the prophets, it's not those who recite now. He says, hamalatul Qur'an, those who carry. And the carrying cannot be understood as, you know, physically carrying the holy book. How are you carrying the Qur'an? 
Okay, what does that mean? And here again, the Holy Prophet reminded us of the same condition, which is the point of our discussion. We're mentioning this hadith because of this part, because of the exception mentioned. As important as the Holy Quran is, the Holy Prophet saying the most honorable of his servants after the prophets are the scholars and the carriers of the Quran. So again, we're talking about the merits, the ranks of the scholar. And once again, you see the link, the association with the prophets. And then the hadith continues. They depart from this world. Now the Holy Prophet goes back to talking about the carriers of the Quran. They depart from this world as the prophets do. They are resurrected from their graves alongside the prophets. They will cross the sirat with the prophets and they receive the rewards of the prophets. So the Holy Prophet says, so happy or blessed or congratulations to the seeker of knowledge and the carrier of the Qur'an for the honor and the distinctions that are bestowed upon them from God. So first, quickly, the hadith is about the merits of the Holy Qur'an. And yet the Holy Prophet made a point repeatedly in this hadith to insert in there the exception. There is nothing more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than the people of this book, the carriers of the Qur'an, the recitation of the Holy Qur'an, except those who are carrying knowledge, seeking knowledge. So this is a very important uh, point to be made. Otherwise, the hadith in itself, and that can become a whole discussion that we have at another time, the hadith is an excellent reminder of the importance of the Holy Qur'an, a reminder for us to at least recite. That was the first layer that the Holy Prophet talked about. He said, recite the Holy Qur'an. There is nothing more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala than reciting the Holy Qur'an. And then we work towards becoming carriers of the Holy Qur'an. But at least recite it. That was the first step mentioned by the Holy Prophet. So that's the first distinction. And then everything around the Holy Qur'an, I think the merits, the ranks that were mentioned by the Holy Prophet, they're incredible. Nothing matches that. If someone tells you, you are going to be raised, you're going to die the death of the prophets. You're going to be resurrected in the afterlife along with that group of people, the prophets. You're going to receive your reward as part of that group. The more you think about that, the more you see that this is a very special place. Another life hack. You can put your energy in a lot of places. This one is telling you very clearly, you want to be in that group with the prophets? The easy path to that is the Holy Quran and the seeking of knowledge. Okay, so that's one. The second point related to this is that Yes, reciting the Holy Qur'an is incredibly important, incredibly and generously well rewarded from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no doubt about this. But then the hadith itself is a reminder that there is more. There's a lot more in fact. And this is to become a carrier of the Holy Qur'an. It's one thing to recite the Holy Qur'an. It's one thing to Memorize the Holy Qur'an. That's certainly one layer beyond reciting it. But it's a completely other one, another layer, another rank and a distinction 
on the path, on that spectrum of becoming a carrier of the Qur'an, when the teachings of the Holy Qur'an become one with you. You represent the Holy Qur'an. Your beliefs are the Holy Qur'an. Your actions are the Holy Qur'an. And the absolute version of that, this is what Imam Ali salam says about himself. This is the perfect version of that. This is the higher limit that we try to achieve, we aspire to. That you become an embodiment of this book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You become the Holy Quran. This is exactly what he said in Safin. When the people on his side of the army refused to attack the enemy army because they carried the Holy Quran. And the Imam told them, this is a ploy. This is a trick. They are tricking you. They said, how can we attack the Holy Quran or people who carry the Holy Quran? And he told them, I am the Quran. I am the Quran that speaks. I'm the speaking Quran. I'm a living Quran. You listen to me. This is just a book. These are just papers. And of course, this was not enough. They still didn't listen to the Imam. But this is to say, to carry the Holy Quran is very different than to recite the Holy Quran or to memorize the Holy Quran. Hamalatul Quran, they're not people who recite the Holy Quran. Of course they recite. Of course they memorize. But the, this is still not enough to say these are Hamalah. Hamalah is that it has become one with you. You are the Quran. You carry the Quran in you. There's no book that you're going to be carrying in the afterlife. You have to be that Quran. It has to show in who you are. What you bring in the afterlife is a compilation of your beliefs and your behaviors. How much of that is Quranic? How much of that is the Quran? What does it represent from who you are? 2%, 10%, 80%? This is where you see Hamalatul Quran. Okay? The next hadith or the next point. There has to be, we have to understand, even though it's just implicit here, there is a link between those who carry the Quran, the Hamalah, the carriers of the Quran, and teaching. It cannot stop at your level. That holy Quran has to be passed on to others. There's an indirect, but it's there in the hadith, a link between carrying the Holy Qur'an and teaching. So that's a quick nuance to notice. And of course, the fourth point is, as great and as honored as all of this is around the Holy Qur'an, it comes after seeking and acquiring knowledge. And this is what we've been emphasizing and we've seen, we're, we're seeing one example after another. As incredible as the rewards are for all sorts of rituals and acts of worship, seeking knowledge is in another category. Nothing compares to it in our religion. If it means that your belief becomes a lot more solid and a lot more certain, it affects you a lot more deeply, then that knowledge is at a much higher rank and a much higher importance in our religion than any ritual act that you can perform. Because those acts of rituals, as we said repeatedly, only gain their meaning through the knowledge that you have. Prayer is just moving around. What you're doing in your, when you're performing your prayer, how is this different than doing yoga? Why are we not getting any reward for performing yoga actions? You're performing ruku' and sujood and moving around. 
They're just mechanical movements. This is not the prayer. This is the outside external appearance of something internal that's supposed to touch your soul and transform your soul. This means that you have the knowledge of what you're doing. You understand who you are worshipping, who you are performing salah to. What is the salah supposed to mean? How is it supposed to transform you every time you stand and pray? When the Holy Prophet says the human being gets burnt with sins from one prayer to another and the prayer is what extinguishes the person from those that burning of the sins. Those few hours between one prayer and another, the Holy Prophet says, we get engulfed in flames. The sins that are flames. And when you perform the prayer, all of that gets extinguished. Is this really happening? It needs to happen. But this requires knowledge. The more I have of that knowledge, the more that prayer has now meaning for me. I can't wait to perform that prayer. To escape from these sins. That prayer means something. And this is knowledge. As opposed to someone who is just focused on when you perform your ruku'ah, do you open your fingers or do you close them? It's important to know that. We want to perform it like the Holy Prophet performed it. And you get thawab for doing that. But that's not the point. The point is that this is touching your soul. And this requires knowledge. Much deeper knowledge and requires much more work spiritually than knowing whether you open your fingers or close them when you perform ruku' or sujood, as important as it is. By the way, in ruku' you open them and in sujood you close them. Okay, as great and honored as the Holy Quran is and as important as it is, we saw that the, this narration emphasizes seeking knowledge and acquiring knowledge. Five, <coughs> there's two transitions in this hadith. We spent a bit more time on one of them. The first one is it transitioned from reciting the Holy Quran to hamalat, to carrying of the Holy Quran. We talked about that. The second one, which is also very interesting, has to do with knowledge. Earlier in the hadith or throughout the hadith, the Holy Prophet talked about there is nothing, he said, there is nothing more beloved to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala ba'da ta'allum al-ilm, seeking of knowledge. And then later, the Holy Prophet starts to talk about scholars. So now you have become a scholar. So you can be in the ranks of the prophets. Now you have the knowledge. You're no longer just seeking it. And at the end, when the Holy Prophet comes back to say that Tuba, Tuba is a term that basically means happy are the ones, blessed are the ones, congratulations to the ones who meet those two descriptions the Holy Prophet says. Those who are fatuba ilm wa al-Qur'an. The seeker of knowledge, not the scholar. He went back to seeking of knowledge. And we can say perhaps the Holy Prophet means that no matter what kind of information or knowledge you acquire in this world, you're always going to remain a student and a learner and a seeker. You remain in that state. So blessed are you for that, for remaining in that category. Perhaps the Holy Prophet is encouraging us. Therefore, because when you hear this hadith, if the Holy Prophet simply talked about scholars, many of us might say, well, I'm not a scholar, I'm never going to become one. So therefore, you know, this hadith is not for me. And the Holy Prophet, to conclude this hadith, 
with these great merits, this great generosity from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He's saying, therefore, if you want to be blessed, congrat I want to congratulate you. I'm going to put you in what category? The category of the seeker of knowledge. You're trying to acquire knowledge. You don't have the knowledge yet. Now it's open to everyone. This is an open invitation. We all fall in this category. You just need to have the desire to learn. Now the Holy Prophet says, فَطُوبَ لِطَالِبِ الْعِلْمِ That's it. Are you seeking to acquire knowledge? Then you can fall in this category and all of this great generosity from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can be yours. There's a couple, a few more ahadith, but I think I'm going to stop here. A few of them might require a little bit uh, more explanation. So let's stop here so that the lecture is not too long for any questions or concerns. And then, uh, inshallah, we'll continue next time we meet. So if there are any questions, comments, concerns, The question regarding the, the, the shahada, when you talk about bearing uh, it, one of the meanings of it is bearing witness, which is kind of obvious in Arabic at least, um, but um, unless you point it out, you don't really see it. This, uh, for a prophet, if, if the meaning, if we're taking that meaning and he's the ultimate shaheed, um, does the, would that, I guess, label apply to him whether he's, he's he was killed or not? And by that, uh, a scholar, if a scholar dies, whether he was killed or not, is he considered a shaheed because of the knowledge he bears and what type of person he was? Okay, so uh, excellent question. So does the uh, role of being a or bearing witness in the afterlife apply to a prophet whether he was killed or not in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and what about a scholar so there is a first discussion that we can have um, about why is it that the narrations use the term shaheed for the person who was killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in what sense is it and there's multiple, there's perhaps seven or eight different opinions about why this person is called a shaheed. That they bear witness to the majesty and the greatness and the power of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or they are still alive. And so they are still performing a witnessing of this world and that's the strongest opinion. They remain in a state of shahada of this world as the Holy Quran says, bal ahya'un, right? So they are still witnessing this world and that's why they are a shaheed. Okay, or they are a shaheed over the injustice performed against them in the, that led to their uh, demise and so on and so forth. Okay, so that's the first discussion that may have something to touch on this. But generally speaking, if we want to strictly stay to the terminology of the Holy Quran, the Holy Quran, as we said, does not use the term shaheed in any way related to the person who dies in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The person who dies in the way of Allah may have to become a shaheed, to perform that role. But the Holy Quran doesn't say that. It simply says there are those who are killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and they will remain alive. And that's it. It doesn't talk about them being shuhada. When it talks about shuhada, it talks about other categories and groups of people. Now, when it comes to the uh, prophets, the Holy Quran does not say that the prophet 
any prophet has to have been killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to perform shahada. Because their shahada, they bear witness over their own nation, the Holy Quran says, to tell Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically how were they treated. How was the message, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is sending them with a message to this group of people. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to ask the prophet, that prophet. And so this is the social shahada, right? That prophet is not going to stand there and say so and so and so individually. He's going to say collectively as a nation, this is how this nation dealt with me. This is the way in which they rejected me. They called me a liar. They said that I was mad. They said that, you know, jinn had inhabited me, that I was doing sorcery, that, that, that. And so they rejected the message that you sent me with. I bear witness that they rejected me and your message. This is the witnessing that we could expect. And of course, there can be singling out of those who are incredibly good and incredibly bad. But generally speaking, this is as a nation. It's a collective. There are two distinctions that are perhaps mentioned about the Holy Prophet specifically. And depending on how you interpret the verses, the Imams with the Holy Prophet, that he is not only performing this same type of bearing witness over his nation, but that he performs a bearing witness over all other prophets and messengers. That they have indeed performed their prophetic duties accordingly. In other words, the Holy Prophet is bearing witness that they have acted in the way they're supposed to act as messengers and as prophets. And he is the seal and he is the final one. So all of them had to do their perform their mission in the right way for him to be able to perform his in the right way. And he has that rank over them. In any case, that's going to be a very deep and, and technical discussion if we wanted to go into. That's one. But it also speaks to the rank of the Holy Prophet based on all other prophets and messengers. That's one. But we also have verses in the Quran that clearly say, for instance, وَقُلِ اعْمَلُوا فَسَيَرَ اللَّهُ عَمَلَكُمْ وَرَسُولُهُ وَالْمُؤْمِنُونَ Allah SWT says, act. And this is a whole teaching in our religion and we spent a bit of time on that. The importance of acting. Act. Don't wait. Don't procrastinate. Don't overthink. Act. Move into action. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will see your actions and his prophet or his messenger to be accurate and his messenger and the believers. Clearly it is not all the believers. So which believers? There has to be believers who are able to see all, act, all of our actions. So this is going to bring us back to there is an individual bearing witness whether they have been killed or not in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are witnessing and they will bear witness over our actions. And this is what we find in our narrations too. That for instance, once a week, on a Thursday night or on a Friday, that all of the actions of the followers and the believers are brought to the imam of their time. He bears witness. He wants to see who is doing what. You claim to be my followers. You claim to be preparing the way for my reappearance. So this is a bearing witness that is taking place. Okay? So what is uh, The seeing. What does it mean? So this is a form of bearing witness. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is going to witness those actions that you're performing. To see how good or bad are you acting or not. 
But it doesn't stop there. The verse could have stopped there. It says, no, and his messenger and the believers. So clearly a very select group of believers here are mentioned. And that's why we say the true form, the absolute meaning of the believer is the infallible. The absolute form of the scholar is the infallible. Always in the Holy Quran. Very well respected. Okay, The same thing is going to apply to the scholar. The ahadith that talk about, this is just one example. We have multiple other ahadith. The scholar will bear witness over their nation. So the community that they're in, the nation that they're in, the area of influence that they have, the sphere of influence they have in this world, they will bear witness over that. Because it's not about the scholar. It's about how did people receive the knowledge that this person is trying to impart. Did they accept the knowledge? Did they allow this person? Did they support this person? Did they enable this person for that knowledge to be carried out, to spread or no? All the hadith say that the scholar, whether they are killed in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala or not, is now irrelevant to bearing witness. Okay? Tafadhala. Uh, you still a bit more curious about the one that dies in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You said the most, uh, the most, the strongest opinion is that it's, they're called shaheed because they're continuing to witness this world. Is that like a merit of theirs that other people are not able to to view this world while they are able to? Or is it like a special responsibility of theirs that they will be witnesses of this world to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? So the, the strongest opinion, I'm not saying this is my opinion, but the one that you see the most and is backed by the scholars is that no, they as a merit and a distinction of theirs, that they are fully alive in this world, just like you and I are alive in this world. And that's why the Holy Quran, in two verses it says this, that they are ahya. What about everybody else? Well, everybody else is tawaffathum rusuluna. Can they have access to this world? Yes. You may be granted access to this world here and there in different forms after you pass away. But generally speaking, that's it. You've been cut off from this world. Except if you are those, they are alive. Their ability to witness this world clearly is different. They are a lot more aware and they understand. And to us, the greatest example, for instance, is, and this is what we say in our, in our ziyarat of all the masumin. We say that this is the role they play. You see me and you hear me. I bear witness that you are witnessing me and you are hearing me and you are seeing me. And the Holy Prophet would say that, and this is what we believe, Imam Hussain all the Imams, they play this role. It's different than, you know, remembering someone who might be a good person, but because they don't fall in that category, then, you know, their ability to uh, interact with this world is going to be very limited. The second meaning is what you proposed. And it's an excellent meaning is in that they are called this, they are called a shaheed because they have a responsibility. So I'm not saying this is my preference or not, I'm simply saying when you go back to the opinions, and there are many, as I said, there's at least seven or eight opinions on why they are called a shaheed. The first one and the second one is that one, which is because of the responsibility. They have to now bear witness over what was done to them. Why were they killed? What was this person trying to do? That they had to sacrifice their life for it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not prescribe this as the time for this person's death. This is what the Quran says. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala prescribes death for people. 
we all have an appointed time to die. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala might want someone, you know, without being killed. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows this person will be killed. That's not what we're saying. This person should live a full life of 80, but this person is killed at 24. Why? Why did they have to die at 24? They can bear witness. They can talk about an oppression or an injustice and bear witness to what was happening that led to them, whether they did it intentionally or not. What led to that? And so this is the second meaning of the shaheed. This is what they bear witness to. But generally, this is not the, the one that comes up the most or that scholars back up the most. Again, I'm not trying to give one priority over the other. That would require a lengthier discussion to see which one is perhaps more valid and can we say more than conjecture because a lot of this is analysis and conjecture. When it comes to the student and the teacher, yeah. let's say a teacher teaches a student something and it's good, but the student misunderstands the teacher and then goes either acts upon the misunderstood knowledge or they spread the misunderstood knowledge. In this case, would the fault be, uh, would the fault be for the teacher who didn't cater their teaching towards a student or would the fault be or the student be at fault for not verifying their misunderstood knowledge? Okay, so excellent and tricky question. Uh, so in the case where uh, a student acquires knowledge but misunderstands that knowledge and then spreads it in the distorted or misunderstood way. Um, so unless we can show or unless clearly the teacher uh, was not providing the information accurately and in the right way or communicating or teaching in the right way based on the manner in which you asked the question. Uh, I would say in this case, the teacher is safe. The teacher has transmitted the knowledge, but there was a misunderstanding on the part of the student. That's one. The second point related to this is, I'm assuming, based again on the way you framed the question, that there were no ill intentions here. The student was not trying to distort the knowledge or, um, you know, misunderstand. The misunderstanding happened by itself as a result of whatever, and the person misunderstood. So in that case, in our religion, the general principle is, therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will not hold you accountable in the sense of saying that you are performing a sin and punishing you for an innocent misunderstanding. That's two. Three, now what happens now that you know that you have spread false information? What do you do now? So to the extent possible, you are supposed to rectify it. You are supposed to try to go back and say, I made a mistake here. I misunderstood something and try to find the people you influenced one way or another and tell them I made a mistake. This is you know, a misunderstanding, a mistake. Please forgive me. This is the correct way of understanding this and that's it. And in our religion, so long as the intent was not an ill intent, you were not trying to distort, you were doing what you can to learn appropriately. But this is something very natural and it will happen a lot. For someone trying to learn, there will of course be misunderstandings. And there will of course be shortcomings on the side of the teacher. And of course there will be shortcomings on the side of the learner. This is just the way it is. And the more you learn and the longer you spend time trying to learn and trying to teach, the more there will be these cases. This is the nature of science and the nature of learning. 
Okay, so this cannot become, therefore, the reason for someone, for instance, not wanting to learn or saying, you know, finding an excuse to, therefore, I'm not going to learn or I'm not going to teach. No, you learn and you teach and you take the responsibility that goes with it so long as the intent is good. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, inshallah, will accept and forgive. Allah so, you know, there's like are many different religions like us, Islam, Christian. So why didn't God like made one religion that everybody can follow instead of like a bunch of different other religions that people are following the one? Okay, so uh, the question is, why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal only one religion for all people to follow? Uh, and there were now in the real world that in which we live, there are multiple religions. Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveal multiple religions? So first, the question has nothing to do with our lecture, but that's fine. Absolutely okay. We take them, but we usually wait for all the other questions to be done about the lecture. <laughs> that becomes a whole lecture. <laughs> Don't give me that, uh, <laughs> that opportunity. Um, in short, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could have given only one truth that is explicit and that is very clear and without any ambiguity to all human beings to follow, end of story. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala didn't want that. Because this world is a world of tests. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted the variety, wanted to send numerous missions to human beings. That's the short answer. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did not want to send just one truth. He wanted to send the truth or multiple truths, multiple times. Okay? That's the short answer. The slightly longer answer, which we cover in classes of aqa'id, for instance, is to say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't do things randomly. It's not just because. There's a reason. And in the Holy Quran, there are hints to that reason. And in the narrations, there are very clear explanations of that reason, or those reasons. Is that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala only sends the truth that those human beings can fully understand and apply. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala cannot reveal the same truth to all the people all at once. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a form of the truth, a type of the truth, a version of that truth to those people because this is what they need in their time. And then at another time, another group of people are going to need their own version of that truth. And if those people happen to exist, let's say, 2,000 years later, their needs are probably going to be very different than the ones who were living 2,000 years before. Until we believe Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wanted to reveal a truth now that humanity is ready to take that truth and keep it as is. So he revealed the full truth in its most perfect form, which is what we call Islam. Our version. The version that was revealed to the Holy Prophet is it in contradiction with? No. It's all one and the same truth that was revealed every time. Are there details that change? Yes. There are little details that change from one version of the truth to another because human beings were not able to understand it fully. They did not have a need, a need for it. It might have been too difficult for them and so on and so forth. Until humanity is ready, which is at the time of the Holy Prophet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sends a version of religion in truth, and this requires an extensive study of comparing between Islam and other religions. How is the prophethood of the Holy Prophet different? 
Why is his miracle different? Why is the Holy Quran still in our hand and unchanged, unaltered, whereas the other books ended up being changed? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, this one is not going to be changed. Why does it have to happen to this specific group of people? Why wasn't it revealed to someone else at another time? All of that falls into this discussion that we usually study under Nubuwa, under prophethood. But in short, the answer is because human beings at this point in history were now ready to receive the full truth. And this truth, when it was revealed, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through the Holy Prophet, He told us, and that's it. There's nothing else that will be revealed after this. You will not need anything more than this. This is the full truth revealed to you. So I'm not going to continue to reveal other versions of this. You don't need any more details. The full application of this, this is through the imams. Because the Holy Prophet will not be able to, and the people in his time will not be able to absorb all of these teachings in his 23 years of a mission. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala appoints 12 people after the Holy Prophet, 12 generations after the Holy Prophet, to continue to teach the application of these teachings to humanity. Okay? So it's an excellent question. Ahsantum, tafadhal. So the Quran uh, is a creation, correct? And the Sayyidah Jafar explained it as well. That is a creation and that on the day of judgment it will be like a huge nur that walks in front of people. And, uh, would you say that that creation be Imam Ali himself and that, uh, like, how do you say, illumination form? Or would it be a separate creation than Imam Ali? Or is it one? Okay, so, so the question, I'm going to add a little variant to what you said. Okay, just to avoid confusion, um, the question is, uh, the Holy Qur'an, is the Holy Qur'an a creature or not, a separate entity or not? And would we say that Imam Ali salam is one and the same entity in the afterlife? Clearly, from the ruwayat, these are two separate entities. When you go back to our ruwayat, the Holy Qur'an is created from the light of the Holy Prophet Okay, and so... Is it the same one and the same entity? No. The Holy Prophet is an entity. Imam Ali is an entity. The Holy Quran is an entity. Prayer is an entity. Uh, and so on and so forth. These are different existence, dif different entities. And the Holy Quran will come in full form. It will come in full form in the afterlife. And, and this was a topic that I wanted to talk about. We'll leave it till, till uh, the next lecture, inshallah. There is clearly imagery in the expressions around the afterlife. Clearly, there is nothing that can prepare us entirely for what awaits us in the afterlife. It's a completely different type of existence. It's a different dimension. It's a different realm. It's a different reality. So long as we're not there, we're not witnessing it, we won't be able to say what it is. So the language that we use, the human language that we use, can only be limited to the words we have and what we know in this world. So everything that talks about the afterlife is imagery and it's symbolism. It's symbols to allow you to kind of imagine what awaits us in the afterlife. But it can't, we can't say this is exactly what it will be. It, of course it will not be. We will create you in that, which, in that which you do not know or cannot know. Right? This is going to be completely different. Is there a sama? Yes, there is a sama. 
But it's not going to be the same sama. Is there an ard? Yes, there is an ard. It's not going to be the same ard. It's not this planet in this world in this in this way of understanding things. The Holy Quran talks about all of this. So when we say that, for instance, the the Holy Quran is an entity that will come in the afterlife. Yes, we have a description of it, how it will be. The prayer will come. Not even in the afterlife. We have it in the qabr, the moment that you die. The person who prays, the prayer will come and it will sit at your head. Every action that you perform, there is rituals that will come and they will sit at your feet to protect you. And they will sit at your right and sit at your left and be over you. The Holy Quran that you recite, all the good deeds are going to be like a light in your grave. Why is all of this mentioned? Does it mean exactly this wording? Is like, does it look like you know this light bulb? No. It's imagery. It's symbolism. But it's clearly trying to tell us because there's an insistence on it. And it's not like, you know, random images. When you see that the same image comes back again and again in, let's say, 300 different narrations, then there's clearly something in that, you know, for instance, the idea of it's light. Okay, well, clearly it's light. And this is not random. Now, is it the same light that I'm seeing right now? Probably not. But it's good enough that I should understand what it means. So we say there's a light, and that light will appear. Or there's hellfire, flames, and fire. Is it the same fire of this world? Certainly not. But there is enough insistence on it that I know, well, this is the closest thing we have in this world to make you understand what's awaiting you over there. Okay? So in the same sense, when you have narrations, for instance, that talk about tajassum, or tajassud, but usually it's tajassum al-a'mal, or to take it one step further, it's not just that they become concrete objects, it's that they become persons. The Holy Quran will come as a person. Surah Tabarak will come as a person. Right? It's, it's mentioned explicitly multiple, multiple narrations. So, in short, same or not, no, they are two separate entities. But the Holy Imam Ali السلام, is saying, he personifies the Quran in this world. There is nothing that you find in this Quran that is not an Imam Ali He's saying, so you are being tricked by looking at the material appearance of the Quran when I am the living entity that is this Holy Quran. You can't find the living proof of the Quran outside of me. That, that's the, the saying in, in Safin, right? And they were still disobedient and he had to stop the, the war right before winning. Ahsantum. وصلى الله على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله الطيبين الطاهرين